Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we... Give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for recording your will for us in your word and for the way in which you use your word to work in our hearts, Lord, even beginning at our salvation and then continuing with our sanctification and growth and how you open your heart to us through your word so that we can understand you and your will and who you are and what your desire is for us. And we ask, Lord, as we look at this text, that you would give us eyes to see into the heart of our blessed Savior as he was pondering the great suffering that he was preparing to endure for us. So please, Lord, be gracious to us, forgive us for our sins, remove all distractions, and we pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we might hear from you. Lord, we ask that you would Invade our lives with your gospel truth so that we would regain our focus and that we would continue on committed to serving you until we are home with you in glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. At the Passover meal and the initiation of the Lord's Supper, the Lord had revealed that one of his apostles would betray him. Crossing over to the Mount of Olives, he had further revealed that all of his remaining apostles would soon fall away, abandoning him. And now the Lord would begin his descent into the incomprehensible state of suffering that he would endure for our sins. In anticipation of his impending suffering and cross, and most terrifyingly, the wrath of the Father that he would endure, the Lord experiences a time of profound, deep agony here, as he takes his closest three disciples with him to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Many believe, and I believe this accurately to be the case, that the Lord Jesus Christ would have died here in the Garden from the overwhelming sense of dread and terror that he had experienced 
Were it not for the angel who came, we see this in a parallel text, an angel had actually come to strengthen him. We see that in Luke 22. Strengthen him so that he can get to the place of atoning for our sins. Otherwise, more than likely, his flesh would not have held up here even. Needless to say then, for this morning we will consider the Lord's agony in Gethsemane. His agony in Gethsemane. Let's look at first at verses 32 to 34. And they went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And so on the Mount of Olives, there is this quaint garden where the Lord would often take his disciples and also he would go himself to pray in this garden at times, a very discreet place, uh, but it was common to him and his disciples. Of course, Judas Iscariot would have known this place very well, which is why he knew how to betray him. But while here on this occasion, he takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes deeper into the garden so that they can watch and pray for him and pray with him as his soul begins to be overcome with great distress. For he has reached the very pinnacle of his ministry, the ultimate purpose for his very coming, and the reality of what he is about to experience crushes his soul with deep sorrow. Notice three intense descriptions that are given to describe what the Lord was experiencing at this moment. Remember, this is not the cross yet. He hasn't gotten there yet. This is just an anticipation of it. Notice the intense descriptions of what he was experiencing. The first two descriptions are that which Peter, James, and John would have beheld in the Lord's outward demeanor. They would have seen it in the way that he was acting in his outward demeanor. We're told, and he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And so having been intentionally set apart from the other eight apostles, Peter, James, and John can clearly see that the Lord is extremely vexed, that he is overcome with terror, with an unnatural fear, certainly unnatural for him. The word greatly here, greatly distressed, is speaking both of the word distressed and troubled, greatly distressed and troubled. And it's an adverb of intensity that indicates the high level of distress and trouble that the Lord Jesus Christ was experiencing. He was very noticeably terrified and overcome with great fear. But then adding to what they can see with their eyes, as they observe his movements, as they observe his demeanor, as they observe his actions, their ears pick up an accompanying verbal cue. We're told, and he said to them, so they can see it already, but then we're told, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, it's, under, it's, it's important, brethren, that we understand something about the Lord Jesus Christ when he says these words here. Because we can really distort um, what he is saying by our understanding of these terms and how we use them today. We need to understand that he's not exaggerating here. He's not using exaggerative language. In other words, it's not like when we experience a moment of fear. Maybe you're driving in the car. Recently I was driving with my wife 
and so my children, and all of a sudden it was dark, and out of nowhere, um, lo and behold, a cow was crossing the road. Not a deer, a cow. And it was a brown cow, so you couldn't see it till the last second. And my wife screamed, and I don't know if I would even have seen it if it wasn't for her. And I swerved out of the way, and I said to her, was that a deer? And she said, no, it was a cow. And so what's the expression that we say? Well, I said to her, I think my soul is still back there. I left it back there. And the expression we use is, I was scared to death, right? Don't we use that expression? I was scared to death. Now, we know when we use that term, or when we use those terms, we're exaggerating, right, the scope of our fear. It's exaggerative language that we use. Well, when the Lord says here that he is sorrowful even to death, he's not exaggerating. He is accurately describing the depth of sorrow that is weighing down upon his soul. He is literally, literally sorrowful to the place where he could die. His physical body is struggling to function. His heart is beating abnormally fast. He was sweating, as we're told in a parallel text, big droplets like blood. And by the way, it was a very cold night. Later on, Peter is warming himself by the fire, right, at the, at the priest's home. So it wasn't a hot evening um, when he was sweating. And the agony that produced, that he had within him was an agony produced by a fear of the reality of that which he was about to experience. It was so great that it actually could have killed him. And again, an angel actually comes, we see in Luke 22, to give him strength just so that he could survive the garden agony. Now one might ask the question, how can fear alone bring one to such a great depth of sorrow? Well, consider what the Lord really feared here. Consider that which weighed him down with such great sorrow and recall that his, that his understanding of that which was about to take place was perfect. He understood what was about to take place with a perfect knowledge. See, our fear of things that we have not experienced is limited, isn't it? We've not experienced certain things. And our fear is limited because we cannot fully understand those things until we meet them experientially. So we can be afraid of certain things and sometimes, of course, unnaturally afraid of certain things. But we really don't fully understand unless we've experienced it in that sense. That's why the great majority of unsaved people in our world can walk around boldly and arrogantly suppressing the reality of the wrath to come. How can so many people on this earth who are unsaved, who have no relationship with the Creator, who have the wrath of God hanging above their heads at every moment, how can they laugh and smile and live life? Unless they suppress the truth and don't really understand what's up ahead. They're blind to it in the present. They're so enamored by their sin we're told in Romans 1 that they suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. That's where we were before we were saved. You look back and you said, how in the world did I live like that? How did I do those kinds of things? How could I be blind to the reality of my God? We were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. See, but that's not what the case with our Lord Jesus Christ. He knew the truth full well. He could not suppress it. 
He knew full well what he must face, and it struck him even before it met him face to face. Well, what then was it that drove our Lord into a state of such incomprehensible terror and deep sorrow? What could bring about such fear? Was it the whipping and the beatings and the mocking that he would experience? Those are some horrible things. What the Jews would do to him, what the Romans were about to cast upon him, both physically and emotionally, psychologically, all that was to come in that. Were those the issues that were troubling him right now? No. Those things were not joyful by any stretch of the imagination, but they would not provoke this level of terror in the Lord. How about the crucifixion itself? That terrible, slow, and painful pathway to death. It was a means of executing people for the sake of torturing them even before they die. So that they would be tortured unto a slow death. And it was also a means of deterring crime that the Romans used. Having nails driven through your wrists and your feet. Being lifted up on a wooden cross. Fighting for breaths as the weight of your body pulls you down. Enduring the extreme pain of having your raw back which was just flogged. Chafing, having it chafe against the wood as you reach up for another breath until you eventually die. It's probably one of the most horrible ways of dying. Now that could certainly bring about a weighty fear, but that's not what nearly drove our Lord to death here in the garden. Many people have been crucified before and after the Lord, and so he was fearing something much greater. Many people experience crucifixion. I'm not saying it's something I'd want to experience. It's horrible. But that's not what brought this agony to his soul in the garden. Perhaps we might think of the experience of death itself. The actual process of dying and the soul exiting the body. But I don't believe that our Lord had a fear of dying and there are many precious saints who have faced death fearlessly throughout history, which really is just the ultimate separation of the soul from the body. Well, if none of these realities is the culprit, what is it that terrified the Lord so much then to the point that he almost died even in the garden? Well, brethren, it is that which no movie could ever portray. It's the reason why every one of these movies that have the passion of Christ um, and all these other Jesus movies could never accurately portray what went on in the intensity of the cross. Because it's that which took place on the inside of our Lord. Then only, and only those in hell, I believe, could appreciate what terrified our Lord here. What drove our Lord to such a state of fatal terror was the reality of having to endure the express wrath of Almighty God poured out upon him for our sins. We can only describe it that way because we don't even, we can't imagine what it's like to have the wrath of your eternal creator poured out upon you. But that's what he experienced. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, in our outward senses, when we look at the Gospels, we behold complete darkness 
at high noon. There's a time period there where it becomes completely dark for several hours. And it was high noon, so it wasn't natural. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ in agony on the cross. And we hear him shout aloud that which pressed out of his lips when he screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew why he was forsaken. He wasn't asking that as a question to find out in some way intelligently why it was happening. But it was that which was pressed out of his lips because of what he was experiencing. It was a, a, an expression of the agony that brought that out. Something we can't even imagine that went on on the inside. We can never really comprehend the crushing blow that our Lord actually experienced during those dreadful hours. Something profoundly terrifying, agonizing, incomprehensibly painful on the inside as if hell were infused into his soul. Something that everyone in hell experiences nonstop forever. He drank the full cup. He mentions that here. Let this cup pass from me. He drank the full cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, down to the bottom. He exhausted the full measure of what we deserve, all of us. He had experienced the complete abandonment of all comfort and any inkling of a sense of the good countenance and pleasure of his Father, only to be replaced with the unmitigated, undiluted, pure and perfect wrath of God instead. If you are not a Christian this morning and you're able to breathe freely and walk and laugh at a joke, and enjoy a meal, you have no idea, no idea how blessed you are to have an opportunity to repent and know your Creator. Because there will be a time when you will have no comfort for not even a moment. You still have some comfort from God. There's a general love that God has for creation. He allows the rain to, to water the land for the just as well as the unjust. That will be removed. It's not that hell is a place that's absent of God's presence. It's a place that's absence of God's complete comfort in any sense whatsoever. And it's replaced by his wrath and only his wrath. This reality, which Jesus understood so well, falling upon him as he absorbed all of our guilt, that in itself is telling the actual defilement of sin, something he didn't know personally. He identified with us in every respect except he was without sin. Well, in these moments, our sin was defiling to him as it were. It's not that he sinned, but he bore our sins. And it defiled him as it were in all of its parts. All of our sin in all of its parts was laid on his person. He who knew no sin, well, the thought... Of this coming reality is what vexed his soul almost to death here in the garden. And so he appeals to his three closest apostles. Remain here and watch. Pray with me. Let's look at the second portion of the text where he agonizes now in prayer. Overcome with such deep distress and sorrow, what does he do then? The Lord then moves a little fold further beyond his three apostles even by himself. 
And we're told he falls down on his face to the ground, calling out to his father to see if there is any way that he might be spared from having to drink the cup of God's wrath. Look at verse 35 and 36. We're told in going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, that hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. The most intimate way of relating to, to God, his Father. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What a profound and telling request. Indeed, the Lord knew, he knew that this was the only means of atoning for sinners and reconciling them to God. He knew that there was no other way in reality. But the agony of terror is so weighty upon his soul that he could in such a tormented state still hope that perhaps somehow the Father who is omnipotent, the Father who is all-powerful, the Father who is omniscient, who knows all things, somehow he could provide some other way to bring about salvation to his people. His agony presses him to ask what he knows the answer to already. Notice that the Lord is not allowing even this great suffering, however, to compel him to turn away from his people as if his own life became more precious to him than the redemption of his people. In other words, he's not saying, Father, I want to just end this whole thing right now. Forget these dust particles. I'm not willing to endure this, so take the cup away. That's not what he's saying. See, we as fallen creatures might trample on the lives of others if in doing so we can preserve our own lives. But that's not what the Lord is doing. In fact, in our world, we could trample upon one another for much less things, for job promotions and other opportunities, let alone to be spared some kind of suffering. But he's not doing that. He's merely pleading that if there is any other way that the will of God could be accomplished unto the redemption of his people, that the Father would open that way. It would only be natural for the Lord to desire not to experience such incomprehensible suffering if possible. And so he pleads for the Father to remove the cup from him, sparing him from the utter anguish and torment that lie just ahead of him if possible. But notice, notice, even this terror doesn't drive the Lord, the Lord to pray against the will of the Father. Even this terror doesn't drive him to pray against the will. The will of the Father has always been his utmost priority. Remember when he was virtually starving with his apostles and they went to go get food for him and he was there ministering to a Samaritan woman, which was awkward in itself in the sense that she was a Samaritan and a woman and this Jewish man was ministering to her and they came back with food and you would have expected, I know if I was there, I would have been running up to the disciples and saying, hey, throw me one of those subway heroes. I'm hungry. But Jesus is still sitting there focused on this woman. And they come to him and they say, Lord, aren't you hungry? We have food here. And what is his answer to them? My food is to do the will of the Father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my food. Well, here he shows that that still is his food. And so he adds at the end of his plea, yet not what I will, 
but what you will. Please take this away if possible. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In saying this, while expressing the depth of his burden and his desire to have this cup pass him by, he also expresses his ultimate subjection to the will of the Father. In essence, he is saying, this is my great desire, Father. And if it can't be done, I plead that it may. If it can be done, I plead that it may. But if it cannot, let your will prevail over mine, even now. And so after pouring his heart out for the first time, what does the Lord do? We're told he returns then to his apostles, the three that are closest to him in proximity. And the ones that he commanded to watch and pray with him. But sadly, what does he find? He finds them sleeping. Notice in verses 37 and 38. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Recall now as you see this scene, Peter was the disciple just before this who boldly claimed that even if all else abandoned the Lord Jesus Christ, he would not. And furthermore, that he would be willing to remain with the Lord Jesus Christ even unto death if necessary. And of course, the Lord had told Peter that not only would he indeed abandon him, but furthermore, he would deny him three times that very evening. Well, here we find a telling prerequisite to Peter's coming fall and denial. He is fast asleep when he ought to be watching and praying. He is helpless prey for the roaring lion and totally unprepared for all that is about to transpire. Peter, like the rest of humanity, is no match for the devil and his minions. And so he must avail himself of divine power from heaven if he's to overcome the wiles of the wicked one. In short, he must watch and pray. And so the Lord awakens him and the others and he exhorts them to watch and pray so that they don't enter into, so that they're not seduced by temptation. So originally it's just pray with me, watch and pray. And now he's saying, look, so that you don't enter into temptation, watch and pray. And brethren, is it not amazing that even now, while agonizing over his own upcoming imminent suffering, the Lord yet turns his attention to the needs of his apostles, exhorting them to seek refuge in God so that they're not swept away by temptations. He's focusing on their well-being. Even knowing that they will fall away, he continually points them to the only remedy that could actually prevent their fall, all the more leaving them without excuse when they do fall. He doesn't say, well, you know what? It's going to happen, it's scriptural, it's biblical, so be it. He warns them and gives them the very remedy that would help save them from that fall at the same time. See, God always provides a way of escape when we're tempted, but we are responsible for making use of that way. And here we find the apostles responsible for their own downfall. These actions, we're told, are repeated two more times with the Lord returning to pray to the Father with the same dire request and then returning to find his disciples sleeping again. 
until the moment of his betrayal after the third time, which we will consider next time, Lord willing, his betrayal. In verses 39 to 42, we read these words. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour is come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Everything will move so quickly from this point on. And the disciples will have no time to process everything. They're not prepared for what's about to happen because they were not watching and praying. You see, brethren, time doesn't stop for us, does it? And the unfolding of events are beyond our control. We can't control this life. Time is outside of our hands. That belongs to God. And we don't know what a day will bring. And unless you are in tune with the living God, unless you are walking with Him now, presently, this God who is all sovereign, who is never surprised, you will always react to trials rather than act calmly, patiently, and wisely. Indeed, fear rules the day where the conscious reality of God is eclipsed by a lack of prayer and devotion. If you're not praying, as we're going to see in a moment, and you're not daily seeking the Lord when things are somewhat peaceful, don't think that when things get beyond your control or beyond what you can fathom, that you'll be ready in those moments if you're not ready now. And so the disciples are awakened by the Lord as Judas and a wicked mob of sinners arrive to arrest the Lord, which will bring us to the next portion of, our, of this text next week, Lord willing. Well, let me leave you then with a few concluding thoughts and applications based upon what we've gone over here, brethren. In light of this text and our Lord's suffering, some things we can think about and how we can apply this to us in some practical ways. I will have a few things that I want to bring to you first. First, brethren, one thing that emerges from the Lord's agony at Gethsemane is the profound reality and extent of his suffering. The reality of his suffering and the extent of his suffering is revealed at Gethsemane. It's so easy to think that because Jesus is the Son of God, that his suffering on the cross was somehow diminished or lessened as if he were some form of superhuman rather than just a human being like us. People will think of that. He's just, he's this superhuman. And his cross couldn't be that bad. And he couldn't identify with us. So let's look at Paul and Peter and these other examples. Because Jesus is in a class of his own. Now don't get me wrong. Jesus is in this class of his own in a, in a special way. But his suffering was real. We must always remember that he was fully man. Containing all of the parts and weaknesses that we have only without sin. In fact... His sinless state probably increased the magnitude of his suffering because he bore our guilt in his pure nature during those hours of suffering. 
Needless to say, the agony of Gethsemane, the fatal dread that crushed our Lord's soul and put his face to the ground before his father three times speaks volumes about the extent and reality of suffering that he would later endure on the cross. The preparation for that suffering shows us that it was real, that it was intense, that it was beyond what we can comprehend. Secondly, secondly, by way of application, consider the fact that the Lord pled with the Father three times to let the cup of his wrath pass him by if there were any other way that redemption could be obtained, but there was no other way. Reminds you of the Apostle Paul praying three times about having a thorn removed. And he knew, though, that it was the will of God when God didn't remove it because God's grace is sufficient and it kept Paul humble. Well, Jesus prayed three times here, if there's any other way. And there was no other way. Rest assured, if salvation were possible by any other means, if God could remain just and yet justify sinners, by any other way, then the Lord would indeed have been spared that cup. The Father would have intervened. His prayer would have been answered if there were any other way. But he had to drink it down to the bottom. And so here we find that there is absolutely no other means whatsoever of finding peace with God than through the atonement provided by His Son. You see it here. There's no other way. Jesus is the only way. No one can come to the Father except through Him. Because no one can come to the Father cleansed of His sin and defilement except through the one who took both to the cross and paid the price for them. There's no other way of being forgiven. Every other religion and cult out there will tell you you can have your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Or you can work your way in some way. Or you can do this or that or fulfill these kinds of things. And none of them take into account the fact that you are a sinner and have offended God and that you need a necessary atonement. True Christianity, biblical Christianity presents you with the only way that says that you can't do it. At all. It all must come from Christ. If you are an unbeliever. If you are a non-Christian. This morning. You must come to terms with this reality. Don't say you didn't hear it. Because God will replay. This very message. As it were into your ears. God will replay the voices of many. Who have told you. That there's only one way. You are a sinner. You have broken God's laws. And your sin is taking you straight to hell. And if you think for a moment. That God is simply going to sweep your sins under the rug. And welcome you into his presence. You are in for an eternal rude awakening. The warning is now. There are many people who aren't even hearing the warning, who've never heard of Christ or the gospel, and they're still accountable for their sins because they're sinners. They're still going to go to hell if they don't come to seek to know Christ. But you're hearing the truth. 
Consider this. His son pled three times in utter agony for the father to provide another way of salvation if possible. And there was no other way. And do you think for a moment when God endured, think about this, when he endured those pleas from his son and soon after poured out his wrath upon his crucified son, whom he loves more than anything that is in existence, do you think that somehow God is simply going to lay your sins and offenses aside, and that after you have rejected his son's free offering the whole time? He says no to his son. There is no other way. Pours out his wrath on him, and you are going to reject that, And think you're going to stand before God and say, is there another way that he's going to say, well, come on in. It's not going to happen. Jesus relates a little bit of that idea with the parable or the could be the real story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was a Jewish man like all the other Jews. Very wealthy, but he left Lazarus at the gate. With his, with his sores all over his body. And never thought of anybody else but his riches and himself. And he had no relationship with God. No genuine relationship with God through Christ. And when he dies, he's taken to the place of torment in Hades. And remember, in that picture, he shouts across a to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, please, I'm suffering in torment. Send Lazarus. With just the tip of his finger dipped in water to give me something to quench my thirst for a second even. Please just send them here so I can have a, a moment of comfort. And Abraham says, no, the gulf is fixed. You had your good time and your good experiences in this life and you didn't. In hell, there's not even a moment of relief. Not a moment. It is presumptuous, grossly presumptuous, to neglect the offering of God's Son after hearing those pleas and saying, there is no other way, Son. And then pouring out His wrath on Him and you to hear the Gospel even today. And then to say, well, I'll just take my chances. And to think for a moment that God is going to pardon you after what He had done to His Son. Don't spurn God's profound grace for another moment. Your days are numbered. And, num- and, and the time will soon come when you are beyond the reach of salvation forever. There is a beyond the reach when you die and you go into the next life. There will never, ever, 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 ever be a chance for you to be saved again. Never. You will live in eternal regret. There are people in this world who have never even so much as heard of the gospel of Jesus. And they will die in their sins. And have been dying in their sins. But you have the way of eternal life laid before you once again this morning. Repent of your sin. And believe in Jesus Christ before it is too late. Don't spin the barrel on the revolver another day and take a chance, as it were, with your very soul. Thirdly, by way of application, brethren, 
Once again, we find here in our text another critical reminder of the need for ongoing personal daily prayer and regular consistent corporate prayer. He didn't just want them to pray individually, but to pray together. There's there's both aspects here. Praying individually and together. There's no way to possibly emphasize enough, other than the fact that it's repeated everywhere in Scripture, the need to pray and the need to do it together. And brethren, there is nothing, at least in my understanding and experience, that is harder in this world, although it seems so simple, than to pray. It's the most difficult thing in many ways. And yet it's, you don't have to go anywhere to do it. It's easy in some ways, but it's difficult. You see, the spirit may be very willing in us, but the flesh is weak. We absolutely cannot fight the good fight of faith apart from receiving constant wisdom, strength, and grace from God. I can remember times particularly early on my Christian walk where I felt like I was walking in the heavens in a sense. Just, I was just excited and it seemed like you could conquer the world. And then but in a few short time moments, you realize there's ways in which God shows you that you are absolutely nothing apart from him. That you couldn't even stand on your own two feet or tie your shoelaces. If we are not constantly seeking God for help, we ought not to presume that it will always be there. Learn from our Lord and his humanity how constant his prayer life was. I preached an entire series one time on the prayer life of Jesus. Because you'll find that the one who you would think could be the most independent person in all of humanity without sin, you would think who would be the one who would not need to pray, prayed through entire nights without sleeping sometimes, would sneak through the multitudes to get out. There's a lot of healing business to do here, but to make sure I have to go and spend time with my father alone. Busy with good things, but he always made time for prayer before he chose his apostles. Say, well, the Lord Jesus Christ is Christ. Of course he could choose the 12 that are going to... He prayed through the entire night before he chose his apostles. Jesus was the most dependent human being that ever walked the face of this earth. Did you know that? The most dependent on the Father and the Holy Spirit. As a man, he himself knew his natural dependence upon the Father. You ever think about that? Jesus taking on flesh took on dependence. Something he had never experienced with the Father before. How much more ought we who, unlike our Lord, have a sin nature to express such dependence. Let us never take daily mercies for granted. We're called to watch and pray. And when we fail to do so, it won't be long before we find ourselves surrendering to temptation. No matter how mighty and spiritual you may be, you may be reading all kinds of great theological books. You may feel like you are a spiritual giant. If you are not watching and praying, you will be susceptible. You will give in to temptation. Ultimately, the denials of Peter and the abandonment of the disciples could be attributed to their failure to watch and pray. 
You might say, but it wasn't it their pride that led to their downfall? Well, think about this. Don't the two go hand in hand? Our pride is most manifest when we fail to sense our desperate need to seek the Lord. We are our proudest when we're not praying. We're still struggling with pride when we pray. But if we're not praying, that is presumption. And that is pride. Fourthly, this is the last, last of my applications that I want to give to you, brethren. Something encouraging that we see here in this text. Finally, brethren, consider this fact. When you ponder our Lord's agony here in Gethsemane, and ultimately his incomprehensible suffering on the cross. Think about this. What Jesus went through will be an experience that you and I, every true child of God in Christ, will never, ever, ever experience for even a moment. We will never experience what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, we may feel at times that God isn't present in some way. We go through times of, ter of terror and agony, and I'm not saying that we don't suffer, but I'm saying we will never experience the reality of what he experienced there in the Garden. Because even when we suffer or we go through those trials or we don't feel a certain way, God is present with us. His good count countenance is toward us. God's wrath toward our sin was entirely appeased and exhausted in Christ. So that while God does lovingly discipline us, He never does so as a means of condemning us or to terrify us. He drank the full cup. Jesus didn't leave any drops at the bottom of that cup for us. If He did, we would be crushed. He drank the full cup. There is no wrath stored up for you if you're in Christ. None. You say, well, you don't understand the magnitude of the sins that I've done. I've done all kinds of things. Jesus drank the cup. Well, pastor, you don't understand. I've had several abortions. Jesus drank the cup. Pastor, you don't understand the, 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 the level of addiction I had to pornography. All kinds of adultery and sexual sin. Jesus drank the cup. Pastor, you don't understand the way that I stole and robbed and took advantage of people. The drug use, the extensive drug use. I have friends who didn't survive and I did more than they did. I was worse than others in so many ways. I had people who were so moral and good in so many ways it seemed. And I was so much more advanced in sin than them. Jesus drank the cup. Our Lord and Savior... Drank the full cup for us. That's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? And that levels the playing field, doesn't it? That levels the playing field. There's no, well, you know what? I'm a little bit better than so-and-so. In God's sight, we're all a part of the same lump of fallen clay. It has been swallowed up in his suffering and atonement. Let that encouragement all the more compel us, though, to war against sin. Recalling the price that Christ paid to redeem us from our sins. It is worthy of thinking about what he paid for our sins. How ought we to treat and deal with the very cause of our Savior's agony? How should we treat sin when we know what it brought upon our Lord in his agony? We're never called in Scripture to be a violent people. We're called to be peaceful and gentle Fervent and firm in, 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 in Christ. But when dealing with our sin, 
We ought to be aggressive and violent, striving to put it all to death by the Spirit. We should strangle our sin, and when it's down, we should stomp on it and cut its head off and continue on until there's nothing left there. That is the one place that we're called to be violent. Well, may God give us the grace to ponder again in our minds and our hearts the agony of Gethsemane, and may it encourage and exhort us to behold the great love of God for us in Christ, which is what compels us to respond in love to him. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the profound love of Christ and what he went through, even in Gethsemane, let alone the cross, the agony that he'd experienced that brought his soul near to death and that he did that for us. Father, we don't know what it's like for an innocent, perfect, and pure person to take on the guilt of sinners, of one sinner, let alone all of us. But that's what our Savior has done for us. And we know what it's like to have that guilt removed from our lives. Lord, when we look back, we have a a record that cannot be removed from our standpoint. What has been written in time through our sin has been written in time. And the only way that that can be etched out, paid for, dealt with, removed as far as the east is from the west, dug, dug down into the deepest depths of the sea, as if it's been paid for legally in Christ. Give us, Lord, the grace to understand and to appreciate the magnitude of the love that comes to us from you through your son, who as he pled for that cup to be removed, you were steady and steadfast in your hand to pour out your wrath upon him, to prepare him even with an angel so that he could endure it, so that he can get there. Lord, we ask that you would give us the grace to see that love and that it would move us to love you and to love one another and to seek to walk heavenward together, we pray. And we ask for those who do not know you, Father, help them to feel the weight of their sin. Help them to feel the weight of the guilt that cannot be erased. Remove the suppression. Let them lose sleep if necessary until they find rest in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.